Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I connected with Coach Bronson Dant, who has been guiding and training people in health and fitness for over 10 years. He has discovered how a whole food, animal-based, ketogenic diet optimizes metabolic health and performance. He is the author of the Ultimate Ketogenic Fitness Book. And today we dove deep into his powerful pain-to-purpose story, the value of mindset, understanding age-related changes to muscle inflammation and metabolic flexibility, three pillars of muscle health related to nutrient density, bioavailability, and satiety, the importance of sleep, extremes of exercise, the value of stress management, understanding weight loss resistance, and his study from the Journal of Nutrition, Metabolism, and Health Science related to menopausal women, macros, and functional movement. I hope you will enjoy this invaluable conversation as much as I did recording it. Welcome, Bronson. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. So have I. This is fantastic. It's been a long time coming. Yeah. Yes. You are not kidding. It's been a process to make sure that we get this scheduled. I'd love for you to share with listeners a bit about your background and your journey, kind of your pain to purpose story, because it's so inspiring to acknowledge that nutrition plays a large role in our health. And it goes without saying that bringing people on that have walked the walk and have been through this process can be very, very inspirational. Yeah. My pain to purpose, it's really stems from two things. One, personal satisfaction in living the lifestyle that I want to live. So I, I talk with clients a lot about really when we're depressed, when we're sad, when we're not happy with our lives, it's because our reality doesn't match our identity. So we have an identity about who we think we are, but the life that we're living isn't actually matching up to that. And so there's a disconnect between reality and perception. So that's what I went through in my mid thirties. I I was 36, 37, and my daughter took a picture of me at the beach. I looked like a beach whale. And it just, it was shocking to me. I think everybody has that one thing that happens in their life. They're like, oh crap, this is not, something's wrong. I need to change something. And that's what it was for me. I saw this picture of myself on the beach. It was not, it didn't match with, perception. So I had the reality of my life butted heads with the perception I had of my life. And I realized something had to change. Either I had to accept where I was or I needed to change something. So I decided to change something. And for me, that started with fitness. I kind of got into looking for what was fitness about? Why was I where I was at and what could I do to change it? So for me, I found CrossFit early in my journey And I really fell in love with that. I got into that. I ended up becoming a coach, opening a gym, doing a bunch of things. And then after six or so years, owned a gym for a couple of years, I had another, the same thing happen again. I'm a gym owner at this point in time. I'm at a pool party with members of my gym who I'm supposed to be leading to better health. And someone took a picture of me getting on the diving board at this pool party. And I was like, that guy looks exactly like the same guy from six years ago. And like, what is going on here? Like I can do more, I'm more physically fit, air quotes. I'm stronger, I'm faster. I can do all these crazy workouts and all this stuff, but I haven't changed the image that I had. 
physically, right? It was totally aesthetic. But then when you dig deeper, I also still had IBS. I still had urgent bowels. I still was unhealthy. I was still depressed. Like I still had all these things. I was just in shape and sick. I was fit. I could do all this stuff, but I still wasn't really any better off in my life, my quality of life. And that's, it was shortly thereafter that I was introduced to the carnivore diet. I started trying, playing around with that and doing that. And within a few months, everything came together. And that's really where I started realizing that, and this is where the purpose comes in, is that I had been so focused on the fitness piece that I didn't realize the impact that nutrition had on the total package of quality of life. And then I work with people all the time and I hear you hear this. I'm sure you've heard this, you know, abs are made in the kitchen. You don't have to work out if you eat right and all those types of things. And that's great if you're only focused on fat loss, if you're only focused on the scale or how you look, but from a quality of life perspective, and this is what I really learned from the experience of owning a gym and working with people, trying to solve people's problems. I realized that nobody's problem is being overweight. The problems that people have, the unhappiness that they have in their life is the limitations that they have placed on their physical ability, which has to do with weight, health, strength, mobility, and all of these other factors, which is a combination of nutrition and fitness. And that's where the purpose comes in. I really, my focus is really on getting people to understand that you can lose weight by what you eat, but you can't live a better life without physical ability. So that's the lesson that I learned myself that I really want people to understand. I think it's really powerful because a lot of what you're talking about is mindset. Yes. And I always say that, you know, mindset is so integral and it's not often focused on enough, you know, certainly in a provider patient relationship and a coach client relationship, I can tell you that we're much more focused on doing as opposed to kind of sitting still and acknowledging how we feel and moving forward on a lot of different levels. You know, you talk about this trajectory of, you know, seeing these two photos and those were powerful motivators understanding that it's not just about exercise. And this is something that I used to incorrectly tell my patients, eat less, exercise more. That is if Mm -hmm. more exercise was going to achieve whatever results they were really looking for, which generally were scale related. But you touched on, you know, the IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which we know based on research is generally related to underlying food sensitivities. You talked about depression. We've had many, many healthcare providers, you know, Chris Palmer, most recently talking about the interrelationship between the gut microbiome and the gut brain connection and, you know, the propensity for diet related to, you know, mental health challenges that people are experiencing. But I want to talk about carnivore sure, because for so many listeners, we've seen profound benefits from changing up our diets. And it's always my go-to. Many Mm -hmm. listeners know that in 2019, I spent 13 days in the hospital. I almost died. And when I left the hospital with a ruptured appendix, because I was too sick to take to surgery, my gastroenterologist and surgeon, thank goodness, knew me well enough. They knew me personally and professionally. They said, do what you need to do because Mm -hmm. the hospital internist was like low residue diet, which for anyone that's listening, that's just a bunch of processed junk. And I told them I'm doing bone broth. I'm just eating meat. I eat meat for nine months and it took me 18 months to be able to really eat vegetables without my digestive system, letting me know that was unacceptable, but understanding that simplifying our diets can be really important. 
And I think for so many of us, we've gotten accustomed to maybe we're eating some degree of nutrient dense foods, but we're still eating processed protein bars. We're still having, you know, paleo or keto junk food and not realizing that the very things that we're eating that we perceive are healthier can be contributing to weight loss resistance, which I know we're going to talk about. It can contribute yeah. to irritable bowel syndrome. I know as an example, I don't tolerate a lot of the sugar alcohols that are in a lot of the paleo and keto products. And I was saying to my husband, I'm so intolerant of them now that if I start to feel that bloating discomfort, I'm like, oh, I need to go back to my roots, which is back to carnivore-ish is kind of what I describe how I navigate. But really <laughs> That's a great way to people. describe it. Yeah. yeah. Cause I was like, I do like vegetables I and mean, I do like meat, but I don't want to have one without the other. So I think it's helpful for people to know that you can be very healthy and metabolically flexible, even in middle life, eating a diet that is really leaning into animal-based protein that is predominantly unprocessed and as clean as possible. And if you follow Bronson on social media, he'll show that he'll have like eight eggs and like a big steak <laughs> as his first meal, which for most women listening, that would be like way too much food. I wouldn't eat the rest of the day, but kind of yeah. leaning into that nutrient density, really leaning into protein and to not be afraid of it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think one of the things you touched on there is the, is, and I actually just had a post about this today. Well, today when we're recording this, not by the time anybody hears this, but I've been impressed lately that we still, and it really kind of bothers me I know it's not going to change overnight. Just the discussion around basing your food on calories. I've had a lot of conversations over the past few months with so many different people where just the power of changing your mindset around calories versus nutrition and understanding that, okay, calories, I understand why we use it. I understand that it's a great, it's an easy, easily accessible way to help people understand how much food they should be eating. The problem is, is it changes your mindset around food from a something that is simply energy-based and it removes any of the concepts and discussion and nuance around actual nutrition and what your body can actually do with the food. So when you talk about people getting stuck with keto treats and things that are labeled healthy and, and processed that are just processed replacements of crap and not eating whole food with nutrient density, bioavailability, and satiety. Those are my three pillars for nutrition. Those should be the focus for what everything we're doing nutrition-wise. Because they're thinking about it from a macros perspective of calories and how much fuel am I getting? Not how is my body actually using this food? Because that's really what matters. Your body can't use calories. Your body uses protein. Your body uses fat. Your body uses carbs. And they have different effects on what your body does how well your body performs, the stress that you add to your body, the efficiency that your metabolism can run, and all of these things. So it's not about fuel. And, and that's one thing I, I definitely want people to understand is fuel is such a small percentage of the big picture of how all of these things interact with each other. Yeah, I could not agree more. I always say that uh, you know there's the calorie model or hypothesis that really is devoid of, of helping us understand what is a proper portion of protein? What is a proper yes. portion of healthy fats? And it begets the fact that, you know, our bodies are far more sophisticated than just calorie counting. And it was interesting. I was listening to a podcast with Stephen Gundry and Sean Stevenson literally mm -hmm. just three days ago. 
and Sean was talking about the advent of the calorie in terms of nutritionally and, and when that was emphasized and how there was suddenly all this shame around food, like, oh, if you're hungry, it's a good thing. It's it's a sign that you're being strong. You know, you're gonna work through your hunger. <laughs> yes. And it's evolved into now there are definitely different camps. There's the carb insulin hypothesis, which I lean into. But it also, I always feel like it's always kind of evolving because there's also this, you know, we're really looking at the amount of toxicity in our environment, our personal care products, our food, our nutrition, and the impact of endocrine disrupting chemicals, which is another added layer. So if you're just focusing on calories, you're missing opportunities to talk about the hormone piece, to lead into these chemicals we get exposed to in our environment, our personal care products and our food that really have profound impact on the way that we, you know, are able to maintain a healthy weight. I think that's the healthiest way to say it. I think it's, you know, unfortunately for women, I think there is very much a focus on, and I hear this often, and I'm sure you do with your clients. I want to be the size or the weight I was at 18, or I want to be the size or weight of what I perceive this starlet in Hollywood is. And I always remind people like healthy is not about being skinny. And unfortunately, as we see people age, and I see this in men and women, but more women than men, people can be very thin, but they look very emaciated, they have muscle wasting. It's important to understand that along with that calorie debate, the insulin carbohydrate hypothesis that many of us embrace, it's the understanding that it's way more complicated than we give it credit for. And 100%. it doesn't have to be, it doesn't yeah. have to be, but we've made it more complicated than it Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the going to the skinny and emaciated or sick, that's the second half of my story and my pain to purpose. Before I understood this relationship between fitness and nutrition, I went through, uh, we've all had, I, I don't know, not everybody, but you know, all of my grandparents have passed. Um, I was very close with my grandmother and process of watching her deteriorate through her life to my grandfather passing. And then she passed a few years after that, watching her. The last time I saw her, she was laying face down in a bed. She couldn't barely hold my hand to say goodbye. I knew it was the last time I was, I was going to see her and just watching that deterioration of her body just completely fade away and become a shadow of the woman that I knew growing up, the woman that was one of, I mean, you know, not everybody has that. I would hope everybody would have a chance to have somebody with her experience in life that could be as close and impactful on them. So just watching that happen and realizing that there was nothing I could do to help her to several years later, learning the things that I learned, having the experience that I have and knowing that having that, honestly, there's a little bit of regret of saying, I wish I had known this stuff earlier so that I could have prevented, maybe not prevented her death, but maybe made her death faster. And there's a phrase that I heard on social media recently called speed of morbidity, which I love it. I absolutely love it. Like live as long as you possibly can, as well as you possibly can and die fast. Like if you die at 80 years old, then it should be, you go to bed and then you don't wake up. Like you die overnight. But up to that time, you've done everything you possibly can. You can still experience life. You can still be physically independent. You can still be mentally aware and you can still be healthy and vital and impact people's lives. And then you just don't wake up one day. Like, so basically I want it to take as long as possible for someone to pass, but when they do, I want it to be quick. And unfortunately, a lot of people start the process of dying in their forties. They start deteriorating and then it's 20, 30, 40 years of them just wasting away. And that's really where my passion comes in helping people prevent that. 
Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's Colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk free. They have a 365 day full money back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Well, and it's interesting that you that you say that about your grandmother. I too had a really close relationship with my maternal and paternal grandmothers. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. My paternal grandmother, she was a nurse and Mm. she had a knee replacement when she was in her late forties and she was not obese. 
but back then they would just replace knees or they would remove, you know, your patella and, you know, the morbidity impact of that on her life and her trajectory. And then for me to watch patients in cardiology for 16 years and prior to that as an ER nurse, I think there's so many limiting beliefs about age. I know that you hear them using age as an excuse. I use that in air quotes because I say that in a non-pejorative manner, but people assuming that just because you're 35, 40, 45, 50, that you're supposed to be obese, inflamed, have terrible sleep, be weight loss resistant, have pain when you move, that should not be the norm. In fact, I was listening to another podcast this morning and they were talking about how osteoarthritis is not just arthritis, that more often than not, it's inflammation related to insulin resistance and some degree of leptin resistance that is driving that pain. And I was like, oh my gosh, just thinking about these aches and pains that people assume are the norm don't have to be your normal. Yeah. Yeah. And also I just saw somebody had put out recently, there was a study, I don't know if it was a new study, but about the fiber gut relationship to arthritis as well. There's some stuff going on there. I think, um, I think it was on Rob Wolf's social media. I, I recall, cause it was saying high fiber it's, it's, was bumping up Prevotella, which was yes. impacting rheumatoid arthritis rates. Yep. Yep. And this is definitely one of those nuances of saying like bioindividuality, not everyone tolerates a ton of fiber and, and that's okay. I'm still at a point where I can't eat. Like I love Brussels sprouts as an example, <laughs> but if I eat Brussels sprouts, I can't eat them the next day. I just can't. Mm-hmm. My gut is like time out, too much fiber. I can eat them three days later, but it just goes to show you can have a healthier diet, but understanding that just because someone tells you that as an example, cruciferous vegetables are good for all that it means it's something per se that you're going to tolerate every day or tolerate with frequency. Now, I know that we're kind of dancing around the sarcopenia. So I know both of us embrace, you know, muscle is, is an organ of longevity. Dr. Mm -hmm. Gabrielle line is a good friend. Um, I know her work has influenced both of us, but really helping people understand how important it is not to lose muscle. And so we, we really become at this, you know, North of 35, certainly women as they're getting closer to menopause, hormonally are at a disadvantage unless they are aggressively working towards maintaining and not losing muscle mass. And this happens to men too. My husband's a former college athlete who is still doing jujitsu and up until the pandemic was still playing lacrosse. And he's a very active middle-aged guy, but even he is noticing, you know, changes relative to fluctuations in testosterone. So how do we come to you know, some middle ground about talking to people before they are 40 years old about the importance of muscle and what muscle does for us in terms of metabolic health. How we talk about it really is there's a bunch of different ways I think we could approach that. I think the number one thing to look at is when I try to explain to people the importance of muscle, I start, I like to start with where people are at now. So when we look at, okay, general, we know what is it, 70% and climbing of Americans, people in the world, I don't know how we want to look at that number, um, are obese or metabolically unhealthy. And part of that is low muscle mass. If we look at the general population, the average man is about 35% skeletal muscle mass. The average woman is about 32% skeletal muscle mass. Okay. The research that I've done, I think, and I talk about this in my book, there's 13 different studies that I found where they look at the minimum amount of muscle that you can have before someone is classified sarcopenic or unhealthy. 
has an unhealthy level. And that, that comes in at around 32% for men and 26% for women. So if the average woman is at 32% skeletal muscle mass and sarcopenia is 26%, most women are closer to not having enough than having more than they need. And I think that's really one of the biggest things that we can look at is if we look at the averages and we say, okay, the average woman is at 32%, but also 70% of most people are obese and unhealthy. Maybe that's not where I want to be. So then where do I want to go? Why do I, you know, what should I be at? And when we talk about recommendations of skeletal muscle mass for women, I say 40% skeletal muscle mass is a great starting point. So if you're wondering how much muscle do I even need? to be optimal and to be generally healthy. 40% is a really good number. And what that is, is basically how much skeletal muscle that doesn't include cardiac muscle that doesn't include internal organs and things like that. That's muscle attached to bone. And how much muscle do I have that actually helps my body move and function? And that's what we're talking about there. So that's a little different than lean mass. So lean mass is basically all of the weight of your body. That's not body fat. And then, so we take that and then we say, okay, how much of that is actual muscle? And then that's what we're talking about. So 40% is a great place to start for women. Muscle itself. And this is one of the reasons why I'm such a big proponent of uh, good nutrition and good fitness routines and habits before a lot of biohacks and doing all these other things, because you can get a lot of the benefit of many of the things that people are focusing on as a biohack or as an add-on or a supplement to their lifestyle just from exercise. So when you build muscle, you increase your strength, you increase your immune system, your, the, the efficiency of your immune system. You, muscle is an endocrine organ, so it, it stimulates different hormones. Muscle improves mobility and physical independence. So there's a lot of aspects that people do like, you know, fasting, you're big on fasting. And I think fasting is a fantastic tool, but I think people tend to overdo it. We can talk about the extremes and how everybody likes to go to extremes all the time. And I think people use it at the wrong time. So I think, you know, for a lot of this stuff, you know, from a nutrition perspective, bioavailability, nutrient density, satiety, from a fitness perspective, move well, move often and move weight. Those are the things that should be the foundation for everybody's lifestyle before we start looking at all these other things, because there are aspects of fasting, for instance, that you can get by exercising. So if you're not exercising, should you be fasting? I think that's an individual thing, but there's a lot of benefits that exercising can give you from an immediate impact to your quality of life that doesn't take healing time. Right. If I'm getting stronger, if I'm working and my exercise routine consists of walking up and down the steps so that it makes walking up and down the steps easier, then the day I start doing that, I'm immediately improving my quality of life. I don't have to wait for the healing process. So just looking at, at how this stuff works, I think muscle has a much more immediate impact than a lot of other things that people are focusing on. I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting. Uh, Rob Wolf and I talked about this on the podcast last year. It's hard for me to say last year because it's now 2023. Right. But the understanding that a lot of people are more interested in the gadgets, they want the aura ring, which I love mm -hmm. my aura ring. Don't get me wrong. The sleep gadgets, the Apple Watch, you know, they want the PMF mat and they're not focused on the basics. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that that's really a good place to start from. And then once you've mastered that, then you can add in these other strategies to see what is working well for you. And I, I think 
And obviously we'll dive deeper into this when we talk about weight loss resistance, but those extremes that you're kind of alluding to, I'm starting to see an evolving, I call it the triad. It's over-exercising, over-fasting, over-restriction of macros. And that is what I'm starting to see, which as a clinician, I find incredibly concerning Mm -hmm. because I would imagine for many of these people, they think that if a little bit of exercise is good, more is better. If a little bit of fasting is good, more is better. If a little more over-restriction, and by that, I mean, you know, really skimping on your protein, really, you know, kind of dialing down on your carbohydrates. Maybe you're eating the wrong types of fats and really understanding that if your body perceives that you are starving, it's not going to allow you to release weight. Like that is not going to happen. And so I see a lot of these predominantly women that are getting themselves ratcheted in and they're, if they were to track their macros, they're probably having 900 or a thousand calories a day. And I'm like, that's not how you build muscle. That's not how you improve longevity. That's not how you get to a point where you're going to improve your quality of life metrics. In fact, I would argue that you're going to do the opposite. Yeah. And that's the thing is the reason we go to extremes is because we're not looking at the right things. Everybody wants to lose weight and they'll do anything possible to do that. It's about weight loss for most people. And I challenge anybody listening to this to ask yourself one question seven times. Why? Why do I want to lose weight? Whatever the answer to that question is, ask yourself why that answer. I want to lose weight because I don't feel good about how my body looks. Okay, why don't you feel good about how your body looks? And dig and dig and dig and keep working yourself down to something that actually matters, that helps you understand, one, why you think weight loss is going to solve a problem in your life. And two is something that's emotional and brings up, I don't care what emotion it is, something that makes you happy, something that makes you sad, something that makes you regret, something that makes you mad, whatever it is, something that's emotionally connected to the reason why you want to lose weight. And then realize that the weight loss isn't the problem. The weight loss is a symptom of something else that's going on in your life. And then figure out how to solve the actual problem, which will prevent you from going to the extremes because we will understand then if improving my quality of life is the goal, then doing things that are actually adding stress and complexity to the solution isn't improving my quality of life. I tell clients all the time, if what you're doing to move forward is adding stress to your life, then you're not doing the right thing. The whole idea is to make things easier, to make your life better, to improve how you feel and think about your body, your food, and your life. So if you're doing things and you're stressing out all the time about it's 12 o'clock, but I'm hungry, I can't eat till two, and you're freaking out, and all you're doing is now thinking about when your next meal is, that's the opposite direction that you should be moving. We want to get to the point where food isn't on your mind all the time. We want to get to the point where exercise is just something you do. So these are in sleep is just as you enjoy your sleep and it's not stressful to find it, to figure out how to get to sleep and all of these different things. So the idea of two things, minimum effective dose and improving the process that you're going through, it shouldn't be stressful. It shouldn't add stress. So net positive or net negative to the process. I think that's really important for people to understand, you know, Ben Azadi always says you get healthy to lose weight. It's understanding that dialing in on why you feel the need to be X pounds or fit into a certain clothing size or be the weight you were at 18 or, you know, have a certain dress, you know, size if you're a woman or, you know, shirt size if you're a man really understanding what is contributing to why you're feeling the way you do is very likely really not about the weight. It's something much deeper. Now, 
as we're talking about metabolism and muscle and understanding the what happens with age and this role of sarcopenia, you also get, you know, you've decreased strength with age. That's another mm-hmm. normal function of aging if you're not working against it. Help people understand what we need to be doing consistently to be able to maintain and grow muscle mass. Now, let me be very clear. I talk very openly about the fact that I didn't know till I was in my early forties, the whole concept of sarcopenia. I saw plenty of muscle wasting in my patients, but I was like, oh, if I just keep lifting, it'll be fine. I didn't realize you need more protein, you know, more stress on the muscle, high quality sleep, and then understanding there's no shame in this women in particular, you may need some hormone replacement therapy Mm. as you're transitioning men sometimes as well. And there's no shame in it. I want to be very clear about that, but there's multiple things we need to be doing. Do you feel similarly, you know, when you're working with your middle-aged female patients that it's the similar types of mindset shift because they've been indoctrinated into SECO and chronic cardio and not sleeping enough. And they think, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I've had women tell me that I'm like, I (laughs) don't want that. Sleep is important. Yeah, absolutely. I think you just said all the things, right? The most common mindset shifts that I have to make or work people through is being afraid of protein, being afraid of getting bulky, being afraid that if they don't work out. I have one client, just as an example, who came to me and said that she was trying to get 40,000 steps a day. She was walking for three to four hours a day. And I was like, okay, that's, we definitely don't need to be doing that. And then wondering why her body was falling apart. Like we didn't do blood tests. We haven't done blood stuff yet, but I, I can't imagine what her cortisol looks like. Like just the amount of stress that she was putting on her body. So I think people get, there's so many misconceptions about what needs to happen. And I think you nailed it. You need protein. You need stimulus of the muscle, as much muscle as possible. And we'll, we'll talk about what that means. And you need sleep. Those are the three main things. It's not about how you're fueling. If you're the fourth thing that I would maybe throw in there is it's not about what you're adding. It's about what you're taking away. So the more things you can not include in your lifestyle, stress, carbs, processed food, seed oils, those types of things. Now you're giving your body a chance to actually benefit and do the things it needs to do with the protein and those strength training and the sleep. So you're giving, you're making it easier to develop and to grow. So I think that's probably the fourth thing that I would add to that conversation. Protein, uh, we talk about quantities and everyone's got their own different thing. How much protein does somebody need? I think for me, I recently made a little bit of switch. I I usually start people off with one gram per pound of lean mass. If you weigh 200 pounds and you have 25% body fat, then 150 grams of protein is what your target should be. And that's a starting point. I want everyone to understand too that, because this is another belief system perception that I see with people is they hear one person say something and then that's the rule, that's the law. Then they hear something else say something and then they don't know what to do because that conflicts with what someone else that they were listening to says. And anything that I say, anything that you say, I want people to understand is a guideline based on our experience. There's nothing that we're going to say that is a hard and fast rule that should work for everybody. It is a starting point. If you're not able to or willing to experiment and make adjustments along the way, then you're going to get stuck. And if all you're doing is jumping from what one person said to what another person said, you're going to get stuck. You've got to take this information and start playing around with it yourself. Okay. Self-experimentation is the one thing that most people are missing. Everybody wants to just be told what the solution is, and it just doesn't work that way. 
We can give you a starting point, but you've got to figure out where that takes you and if it's working for you or not. So that's just a little side rant. So I'm going to recommend it's a guideline for people to start one gram of protein per pound of lean mass. If you're a woman, and I have a lot of women, mostly women, I'm sure there might be some guys, but many women who are petite and their lean mass may be 80 pounds. They may have 80 pounds of lean mass. And it's like, is 80 pounds, is 80 grams of protein really enough? So what I've started doing, and it's really been working out well for me, is I say one gram per pound of lean mass or a minimum of 100 grams of protein for those smaller women. Because in a lot of cases, 80 grams just isn't enough. And if they're that petite, they might need a little extra protein to try to get them and, and recover some of that lost ground of building protein, of building muscle. So that's where the starting point on protein is. On the strength training side of things, if you are not stressing your muscle, and I like how you said that, it's stress on the muscle. If you're not stressing your muscle, your muscle doesn't know that you want it to do something and grow. So you have to tell your body. And here's the thing. I see a lot of women who come to talk to me and they, they share what they're doing for their exercise. And either it's the excessive cardio overtraining, or it's the excessive high intensity interval training or the excessive CrossFit or the combination of all of the above, which is one thing to work with. The other extreme of that is the, yes, I'm lifting weights, but I'm lifting five pounds, 30 times. And then I put the weight down and then I say, I did my workout for the day. I'm great. There's no strenuous, not intense. There's no sweating. There's no grunting, right? And we need to understand the idea that muscle doesn't grow without stress, intensity, effort, challenge. If there's no point in time in your workout where you're questioning, can I lift this? Then you're probably not going hard enough. And you're probably not going to see the muscle growth that you're really trying to get. So don't be afraid to add some weight. Don't be afraid to go more intense. Don't be afraid to maybe instead of doing 20 reps, find something that's challenging for five reps. Increase the weight. If you can't lift it five times, that might be where you need to be for a little bit. So there's a process of understanding what it really means to stress the muscle and to push through. And it's a word that I don't think we talk about enough in the space, and that is developing grit. We need to be able to push through challenging effort, challenging work, develop that grit, develop that. I know this is hard, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that's really where what, the, what we need on the strength training side. And then I think sleep is kind of self-explanatory. We need sleep. Sleep is the most anabolic part of the day. So it's not just that it's recovery time, but what does recovery time mean? HGH is higher. Testosterone is higher. IGF-1 is higher. All of the thing, inflammation is lower. Cortisol is lower. All of these things that are happening to help your body repair, recover, and grow and be able to perform the next day, that's when that's happening. So if you're not doing that and you're wondering why you have high cortisol and you're wondering why you're losing lean mass and you wonder why I'm a lean, it's one of the biggest things I see with people who say I'm a hard gainer, air quotes, hard gainer is they're not getting enough sleep. Well, if you increase your sleep, I think you probably would see a more effective result of your exercise. I love that. And I think for a lot of people understanding that cortisol, when it's dysregulated is actually catabolic, it'll actually yes. break down your muscle. And so, so many of these women that will end up in programs or connect with us on social media. And I really emphasize like stress management is not five minutes of meditation once a week as a middle-aged person. It really is something you're doing every day. Like you were saying, don't add, subtract. You know, yes. leaning into the sleep piece, 
one thing that has been wonderful over the last, you know, 12 days is in my world, I didn't set an alarm clock. I woke up when I woke up every single day. And today was the first day I set an alarm clock to go to a 6am Pilates class, which is my norm on Mondays. But even saying to my instructor, it was easy to wake up this morning. You want to know why? Because I got so much good sleep over the last 12 days. But how many of us are doing that? How many of us Mm -hmm. are allowing ourselves to go to bed at you know nine or 10 o'clock at night and sleep until you wake up. It's amazing when you allow yourself to sleep and it's eight or nine hours worth of sleep. And I think for, for many of us, we've been conditioned to believe that sleep is unimportant. And I would be hard pressed to argue that it's not, it's absolutely foundational to our health to get high quality sleep. hundred percent. I like that too, because I actually, this holiday season has been the same. I think three or four days, this, the last couple of weeks, I woke up at like 10 o'clock in the morning. It's like, oh my God, I feel so stinking good. This is crazy. You touched on something and I want to, this is one of the things I'm really passionate about. And I may actually be digging into more in the next year or two. And that is the idea of what stress management actually is. And we think of stress management and all the, I've been digging into looking for books and and watching different uh, videos and trying to look into courses for understanding stress management more. And it's crazy how most of the stuff that I'm seeing has to do with the tactics and tools that we can implement in our lives to help manage stress. And much of that doesn't include anything we eat or what we do with our body. It's all about meditation and sleep and this and that and mind work and all. And that's all good stuff. I'm not saying that that's not effective and it doesn't help because I do think if we look at our lifestyle, there's mindset, there's nutrition, and there's fitness. And those three things kind of come together. That's what quality of life is all about. So I think the mindset activities and tactics and tools that we have there to help manage mental our mental capacity for managing stress is great. But I think when, and this is something you saw in my book, I'm very big. And this is one of the reasons why I look at fitness and nutrition as being 50-50 in the equation. Nutrition can help remove and manage internal stress, biological stress. It helps our body do the functions and do the things that it needs to do. Fitness, being physically capable, helps our bodies manage external stress. And the two are related to each other. We, you know, nutrition can help with some things physiologically, and fitness can help with some things biologically. Again, like muscle is, a, is an endocrine organ, so it can help with some biological function and vice versa. But we got to understand that stress, no matter where it comes from, overlaps our, our physiology, our biology, and our neurology. So we need to have tools in place in all three of those areas in order to manage stress as effectively as possible. So if our nutrition isn't on, then our stress is going to be higher than it could be. If our fitness isn't on, then our stress is going to be higher than it could be. If our mentality and the work that we're doing with the mental tools and and exercises to manage our mental stress, then we're not going to be as stress-free as possible. So all three of these things are needed in the total equation of improving your quality of life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I always say that the more disconnected we get from an ancestral health perspective, and that may look different for everyone, the more issues we're going to have, whether it's, you know, we're in climate controlled environments 24 seven, we're exposed to artificial light, we don't get connection with nature, we're not moving our bodies, we're not sleeping, we're eating hyper palatable, highly processed foods. I mean, all these things eventually at some point, are going to adversely impact metabolic health, disease states, et cetera. 
Now, one of the most common questions I received from individuals that knew that we were connecting was, what's your take on weight loss resistance? Obviously, I have some strong bias here, but how many of your clients that come to you and just say, I I am doing everything I can and I can't lose weight. And for me, there's always a couple variables and dials that almost always are contributing to this. Yep. But I always like to get my guest's take on this. Yeah. There's a handful of things. Talk about the mindset piece first. And I think the number one thing is there's a lot of people who say they're doing everything they can and they're not. So I think there's definitely an aspect of qualifying that statement with, I'm doing everything that I think I can right now. And changing that and reframing that conversation to, well, is that enough is one question to ask. Are you doing the things you actually need to be doing? 90% of the time, there is one or two things that people are just so resistant against doing. I have people who literally will fight me tooth and nail to not give up diet sodas. And the minute they give up diet sodas, things start happening. And it's like, look, I'm not saying you have to give it up for the rest of your life. I'm saying try not having that for 30 days and just see what happens. Then you have the knowledge to know it, it worked or it didn't work. And then you can make the decision for yourself. What do you want to do? Is this important to you or is what happened in your progress more important to you? So that's one thing. Are you doing what it takes? The second thing is, are you doing the right things? The plan that you have in place, is it really the right plan? This is where we get into my explanation and helping people understand that if we know that calories aren't the thing, then why are we basing our nutrition plan off of ratios of calorie percentage or ratios of calories? If calories are are not a foundational concept that actually makes sense, then let's uncouple how much protein you're having by calorie percentage and how much fat you're having by calorie percentage and move those. I love how you said dials and move those as individual dials. Your body can't use calories. Your body uses fat. Your body uses protein. So how much fat does your body need to function? How much protein does your body need to function? It's like if I go to a mechanic and I say, hey, could you give me a tune-up on my car? And he says, okay, great. What kind of oil, what kind of gas do you want? Whatever fluids you want. And you say, well, could you give me 30% oil and 70% gas? He's going to look at you like, what are you talking about? That doesn't have anything to do with each other. You need 17 gallons of gas in your tank and you need six quarts of oil in your engine. Those are specific numbers that your car actually needs. And that's how I think we need to be looking at macros. And I think a lot of people are so stuck on finding a golden ratio that they miss the fact that if you're not getting enough fat, you're going to have problems. If you're getting too much fat, you're going to have problems. If you're not getting enough protein, if you're getting too much protein, you're going to have problems. And when you connect the two, one of them is always going to be too high and one of them is always going to be too low. So I really want people to uncouple the two of those things and start looking at individually, how much does your body, nutrition does your body actually need? And I think that's probably the most prevailing right now in the space where everybody wants to find that ratio. And I think that's a mistake for a lot of people. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep 
challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. 
WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Well, and it's interesting to me because I'm sure you get these questions. People want to know exactly what I eat every day. And my team, you know, we always put things in Insta stories and, you know, put them in folders so people can look. But I always Mm -hmm. say, this is what works for me. I do best with lean protein, small portions of healthy fats and adjusting my carbohydrate intake based on my physical activity and how much I've lifted. And that's what works for me. But there are plenty of people that tolerate higher fat protein and they don't need as much, you know, and exogenous fat, and maybe Mm -hmm. they don't tolerate carbohydrates at all. And so really understanding that it's this experiment of N of one, the bio-individuality really experimenting to find what makes, what makes you feel good, what gives you energy, which, you know, if you've got a, a CGM or a glucometer, like check and see your body's response to your meals, because for mm-hmm. so many people, they don't even make the connection with, oh, I ate a big meal and then I got tired. Well, that shouldn't happen. Yeah. You know, if you keep your blood sugar stable, you shouldn't get a slump. You shouldn't feel like you need a nap. You shouldn't feel like you're running out of gas. You shouldn't be craving more food after a big meal. Yeah. And so really encouraging people to experiment, but we in so many ways, I feel like the healthcare provider patient relationship has been one where we tell people what to do and kind of that relationship has needed to shift that it's meant to be more collaborative. It's meant to be a little bit more encouraging our patients and our clients to experiment, to find what works best for them and to allow them to feel like confident once they figured out what works for them and saying, that's great, whether it's carnivore-ish whether it's keto, whether it's low carb, people always assume I'm really low carb. And I tell them, no, I'm not. It just depends on the day, but I'm also metabolically flexible. So I can get away with, you know, if I want to have a sweet potato or I want to have, I don't really eat grains, but if I were exposed to it, it's not a big deal. A good example is I generally don't like my one vice in life that it's left is dark chocolate. And I talk very openly about this. And of course there was that consumer reports article that came out recently that was, you know, making everyone paranoid of cadmium and lead exposure. And people were asking, what are you going to do about it? I was like, well, if you really look at the article itself, I'm not terribly concerned about it because the rest of my diet is pretty darn healthy. Like I'm not concerned that my intake of dark chocolate is going to be detrimental to my health. Cause it's not like I'm eating five bars of chocolate a day, sure. but the point of why right. I'm sharing this is that, you know, really understanding that we should all be experimenting. Now, In my experience, weight loss resistance can be related to mindset, as you mentioned, and, you know, getting really honest with ourselves about what are we eating? How are we sleeping? What's our stress management like? But alcohol is one and dairy is another that really, for many people, very challenging if people have a, a complex relationship with either. And we know that dairy in particular can be very addictive for susceptible individuals and then alcohol. And we know over the past three years that many people stopped drinking entirely, others drank more. And so I I feel like the middle-aged human, male or female, that alcohol can be challenging for people and they just don't even recognize the way that our body processes it and that that can contribute to some degree of weight loss resistance. A hundred percent. That's actually one of the things that really got me interested in the nutrition right before I started carnivore. I actually did, I don't know if you've heard of the 21 day sugar detox. I have. Um, Diane Sanfilippo. I did that 21 days. Now, at the time, I was already whole foods. I was already low carb. It was all pretty much green, you know, vegetables, 
not a lot of processed food. I was already doing like a whole 30 paleo kind of a thing. So I didn't really have much sugar to cut out. The only thing I had was three nights a week, maybe four. I was doing a two finger pour of bourbon every night after dinner before I went to bed. So I was like, okay, well, if there's anything I'm going to do in this detox is I'll just cut that out. So, and it was just bourbon. It wasn't a mixed drink. It wasn't beer, like any of that kind of stuff, stuff people that think, you know, think, oh, it's got high carbs. Well, it had nothing to do with the carbs. I stopped drinking that a few nights a week for three weeks. Okay. I lost 10 pounds of body fat. Okay. So not even total weight. I use an in-body at-home scanner. At the time I used one of the professional versions at my gym and I lean mass stayed the same. Skeletal muscle mass stayed the same. The only thing I lost was literally 10 pounds of body fat mass in three weeks. Didn't change anything other than stopping the alcohol. So I'm hundred percent on board with the idea that alcohol is going to, if you're drinking alcohol and you're wondering why you're not getting anywhere, stop it. Just try two weeks, try three weeks and see what happens. Yeah. I think it can be really powerful. We know that our body processes it as a toxin. We know that it can impact REM sleep. We know that it can dysregulate blood sugar and cortisol and leptin and ghrelin. And so for a lot of women in particular, there's this big like mommy drinking culture. And it was definitely a big issue in the part of Northern Virginia I lived in. And I would sometimes <laughs> say like, I-, I couldn't go to these parties during the week yeah. and drink the way that a lot of people did. Cause I was like, I have to get up early. I have to see patients. I'm going to be running in the hospital. I need to have all my faculties. Yep. And I would sometimes be amazed that women were drinking three or four glasses of wine and then going to bed and you know, then, you know, saying to me discreetly the next day, like, oh my God, I'm wrecked. Like I can't drink the way I did when I was 20. And I was like, well, there's a lot of different factors that impact our ability to tolerate alcohol as we get older. Absolutely. And it's one of the things too, especially for women who are pre and going through menopause, it's like adding fuel to the fire. Like there's so many things already going on. If you're drinking through that process, because it helps you manage the stress of all of the things that are happening, like you're just making it worse. And when we talk about the other aspects of recovery, so let's say you're working out great and you're trying and you're getting eight hours of sleep. If you're drinking alcohol, particularly in the evening before you go to bed, that sleep is completely wasted. You're not getting any of the recovery benefits. So you just wasted that workout. You just wasted the sleep. Everything that you did that day to improve your fitness, improve your health is completely wasted. Yeah. And I think it's important, you know, there's no judgment. We're just kind of providing the information during the pandemic. I was never a big drinker to begin with, but I was noticing in my early forties that anytime I drank alcohol, my sleep was terrible. And I got Mm -hmm. to the point where I was like, my sleep is too important at this stage of life. So for me, it was an easy, you know, I'm just not going to drink anymore. And actually I've come to find a lot of our friends in the health and wellness space. And we go to events and we go out to dinner almost no one drinks alcohol. And so it really speaks to the fact that, you know, for many of us, we just prioritize the fact that we really need that high quality sleep. And for many of us, it's no longer conducive to our lifestyle and that's okay. And for those that do choose to drink and you're navigating that and you're not having problems, that's fantastic. But if you are just know that this may be contributing. Yeah. I want to add to that and help people and just to dig a little bit deeper and let people understand that it's not one of the things that really drives me crazy and frustrates frustrates me a little bit is the conversation of people saying that there are keto-friendly alcohol drinks. And the idea that, okay, yeah, you can have wine and it's not going to kick you out of ketosis. It's not going to increase your your blood sugar. Okay, great. But it's completely bypassing all the other benefits and the other things that you're doing to try to maintain healthy metabolism. So yes, there are such things as keto-friendly wines. There is no such thing as healthy alcohol. 
So I want to make sure people understand that. It's not about the carbs in the drink that make a difference. It's literally the drink itself. That's the problem. Yeah. Huberman Lab did a really fantastic, as as everyone knows, I love Dr. Huberman's podcast Mm -hmm. and he did a great podcast over the summer, I believe, talking about ethanol and looking at the research. And I said to my husband who likes to have a bourbon here and there, but I said to him, you should really listen to this because he enjoys this podcast. And he's like, I'm not sure I'm ready. He doesn't have a problem with alcohol, but he said, if there's no benefit to alcohol consumption, right? I'm not sure I'm ready for that message. And so I said, that's fair enough. Totally fair. We'll make sure we link that up in the comments. Now, I want to make sure we leave enough time to talk about the study that you did Mm -hmm. that was looking at peri and menopausal women in the Journal of Nutrition, Metabolism, and Health Science. And so this is a small study, but obviously one that we've got good information on that kind of validates your hypothesis. Would you like to share with listeners what you were looking at? And so it was women ages 45 to 59. So perimenopause and menopause, Mm -hmm. 24 total women went through this study. And what were your findings? Overwhelmingly positive. It was super fantastic. It was one of those things where we did it and it was kind of like, we think we know it's going to happen. Let's hope it actually happens. We wanted to prove, we wanted to to verify, at least get some visible evidence to show that macros that were determined individually, not together. So looking at protein, looking at fat as what someone needs versus a ratio, number one. And then number two, including some difficult, challenging functional movement, moving weights, moving your body and moving well, had a benefit to improving metabolic function, translating into a better experience through menopause. And that's really what the focus was. Let's see if these things combined, because like we said, I'm all about, I think the ketogenic diet is the best foundation for a nutrition program, if you want to call it that, a lifestyle that we have. And I think functional movement with rate resistance and learning how to move our body properly is, is the same thing on the fitness side. So combining the two of those together, what do we actually get? We saw increases in lean mass. We saw decreases in body fat percentage we saw an increase in physical performance. So the women got stronger, they got faster, they had more endurance. All the markers of physical ability, which is the key, right? We, you know, you've seen people as they get older, there's a nurse, Cindy, I forget what it was, she called it. There's a set of physical exercises that she was telling me about that people have to perform as they get older to prove that they are physically independent. A daily movement, ADLs, yeah, ADLs. So you know, being able to do those things. And this was a great example of, hey, if you're 50 years old and you can deadlift hundred pounds, you can probably pass those ADLs, you know, activities of daily living, right? That's what yep. it's called. So being able to show that, you know, training for functional movement and giving your body the nutrition that it needs helps your body process through things better, whether that's daily living or menopause. And that's really what we were trying to show. It's really exciting because one thing that I saw rounding in the hospital is how many patients were my age. So I'm 51. Mm -hmm. They were in the hospital. They had a bedside commode, a bedside toilet, and they could not get on and off the toilet because their quadricep muscles, their leg muscles were too weak. And I used to say that's a really poor prognostic indicator. So one of the things that's really important to me, and it's actually why I lift weights, but I also do Pilates because I know flexibility is very important. Mm -hmm. 
And so this morning at 6 a.m. when I'm, you know, being tortured in my Pilates class, which is a good thing. I tell my instructor all the time, this is why I take your class at 6 a.m. because you're the toughest instructor. (laughs) And I remind myself it's important for me to be able to balance. It's important for me to be able to, you know, work through muscle fatigue. It's important for me to be flexible as I get older. And I think for a lot of people understanding that it's not just for aesthetics, that there's more to it than the aesthetics piece. And to your point about menopausal women, you know, how many women in perimenopause and menopause have horrific hot flashes, which we know based on study research is oftentimes directly related to blood sugar dysregulation and insulin resistance. Like the people that have the worst hot flashes are the ones that have the most metabolic disease and really understanding that, you know, proper macros, doing some strength training, challenging your body, in middle age, we'll gain a lot of improvements. And we know not just physically, but also neurologically, cognitively, you know, understanding that our brains in middle age are setting us up for our brains in older age. And Dr. Lisa Moscone, who I am committed to getting on this podcast, it's going to happen this year. Um, (laughs) She does a lot of brain research on women's brains in menopause and perimenopause. And she talks about the fact that our brains in older age are a byproduct of how well we took care of ourselves in our forties and fifties. So really understanding that it's not just the aesthetics piece. There's so much more to it. It's a lot more substantive than what we think it is. Yeah. And going back to that, there's a few things that go into that aspect of it's not just how you look. The longevity of your hospital stay is correlated to how much lean mass you have. If you're sick, if you have an injury, if you have to get a surgery and you're 60 years old, and you are sarcopenic, you're probably going to be in the hospital longer than someone who's not sarcopenic. You just don't have the reserves. You just don't have, it's not there. Like you can't repair, you can't recover. Everything is harder for your body to do. I like that you do Pilates and I think more people need to do something like that. And the one thing about Pilates that I think is really fascinating is it's not just flexibility. There's an aspect of functional movement where we talk about moving in range of motion. So being flexible. But being flexible doesn't really matter if you're not strong in all those positions. And that's why I love Pilates. Pilates is a mobility modality where you're getting in these ranges of motion, but you're developing strength. So if I can put my hand overhead, that's great. But if I can't hold something overhead or resist movement in an extended range of motion, then I'm going to get hurt. So that's where... Pilates, yoga, there's a lot of aspects of being strong in different positions is really super important. And then on the brain health piece, the I just listened to a podcast with Dr. with uh, Peter Tia, and he was talking about, you know, how exercise is probably the biggest thing that we can do for brain health outside of the subtracting all the nutri- new bad things from our nutrition, but from uh, things that we can actively participate in to improve brain health. And this goes back to that Three, those three component pyramid access of you know, neurology, biology, and physiology. And the things that we do physically require our brain to work. So if I'm learning a movement, I'm, co- I'm learning coordination, I'm developing coordination. The more coordinated I become, the more efficient my central nervous system is, the more my brain can function. If I'm learning how to dance, if I'm learning, let's say I'm learning a dance, I'm memorizing I'm repeating patterns. I'm developing neuroplasticity. Like there's a ton of things that go into 
learning how to do an X. So if you, if you go to do a fitness program and they like, Hey, here's a Turkish get up, learn how to do a Turkish get up. You may look at that and be like, there's no freaking way that is so complicated. It's not happening. But the process of learning the movement is helping your brain stay healthy. So there's many aspects of what we do physically that actually help with a bunch of other things. I'm glad that you brought that up. And and I say this with love and reverence for my Pilates instructor. Sometimes she has us doing things that look a little crazy, but I understand how important it is. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the neuroplasticity. It's important, you know, what wires together, fires together. So for me, mm-hmm. when I'm concentrating in class, it's not only just to make sure I'm doing the movement properly, it's so that I'm laying the foundation. So the next time I do this particular move, my body is like, oh, okay, we've done that before. I know how yep. to do that. Yep. And let me be very clear because I'm sure we'll get questions. I do strength training at least three days a week and I do Pilates at least one day a week. In addition to the other things I do, Pilates does not take the place of strength training for me personally. Sure. And I think it's important to mention, I think it absolutely is complementary to the strength training, but it does absolutely. not take the place of. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm similar. I do four days of strength training and two days of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. That's my combination, the two things I do. That's wonderful. Well, I have so enjoyed this conversation. Obviously, it'll be the first of many. Please let listeners know how to get your new book, which I enjoyed reading the Ultimate Ketogenic Fitness book, how to connect with you on social media, and if they'd like to, to connect with you to work with you as well. Yeah. So the book is on Amazon. That's the only place it's at right now. Like you said, the Ultimate Ketogenic Fitness book. I actually just published a companion journal. So there's some worksheets and some things in there that really help people walk through the mindset piece that I talk about in the book. So some of the stuff is in the book, but then I added a couple other things into this journal that will help you walk through. It's a full year. So 52 weeks, open pages for you to write and work through some of the stuff on a consistent basis. So those are actually available together as a bundle where you can find me. Everything is pretty much ultimate ketogenic fitness. So ultimateketogenicfitness.com. I have a YouTube channel that is ultimate ketogenic fitness. And the only thing that's not is my Instagram, which is coach underscore Bronson underscore keto. If you want to find me on Instagram. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. It's Thanks been a for pleasure. having me. This has been fantastic. I can't wait for the next one. Yeah. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.